Welcome back, all you crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and I am back to bring you another special episode from our teen dating violence segment. Kinsey and I decided that with school back in session all over the country, shining a light on the topic of teen dating violence is so important. Our mission with this segment is not only to educate you of the signs of teen dating violence, but also to bring awareness about how dangerous it is. Often when we think of domestic violence, we think of adult offenders and adult victims. But the truth is teen dating violence is a lot more prevalent than we've ever known. According to the CDC, nearly 1 in 11 female and approximately 1 in 15 male high school students report having experienced physical dating violence in the last year. About 1 in 9 female and 1 in 36 male high school students report having experienced sexual dating violence in the last year. 26% of women and 15% of men who were victims of contact sexual violence, physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime first experienced these or other forms of violence by that partner before the age of 18. The CDC also states that there are four different types of teen dating violence. These include physical violence, sexual violence, psychological aggression, and stalking. Only 33% of teens who were in an abusive relationship ever told anyone about the abuse. And 81% of parents believe teen dating violence is not an issue or admit that they don't even know if it's an issue. Our goal with this segment is to shed light on this under-talked-about topic because it can shape your teen's entire life. We highly advise all of you that are parents to a teen to have them listen to these episodes with you to help educate them on what to look out for with their peers and even for themselves. On today's teen dating violence episode, I will be talking about the tragic death of Brianna Moore. Brianna Moore, who went by Brie, was the youngest of three girls born to Butch and Cindy Moore. Brie and her two older sisters, Brooke and Brandy, grew up living with both of their parents in Anchorage, Alaska. Brie was described to be super energetic and bright, and she always enjoyed making everyone laugh. Growing up in Alaska means you're typically in the outdoors a lot, and Brie was no exception. She enjoyed things like dirt bike riding, hiking, and playing out in the snow. She was always hyperactive and energetic and always had this bright, beautiful smile on her face. She had also the most amazing, beautiful, blonde, curly hair, and Brie was tall. She was 5'11", and naturally, she was the star of her high school varsity volleyball team. She was extremely compassionate and loved animals on a whole other level. According to the Anchorage Daily News, Brie had such a soft spot for animals that she demanded a proper burial for her pet goldfish when she was a child. Of course, the fish died in the winter when the ground was hard and frozen, so her family had to keep this dead goldfish in the freezer until the ground had thawed and that they could give it its proper burial that she desired. Every single Wednesday after work, she would spend her time at Adopt-A-Cat, where she helped care for sick cats. 
According to Bree's mother, she never really had any kind of romantic long-term relationships. Her mother would often ask her, like, what happened to that boyfriend? And Bree would simply reply with, oh, him? He was a little controlling. He's long gone. In 2012, Bree graduated high school and enrolled at the University of Alaska Anchorage with a dream of becoming a dental hygienist. And she also worked as a dental assistant at Health Center Dentistry in Anchorage, Alaska. While attending college, Bree's truck needed some kind of mechanical work done to it, and when she arrived at the mechanic shop, she met Joshua Almeida. Sparks seemed to fly between the two, and soon they were dating, and their relationship seemed to be growing super quick, and soon Josh was meeting her parents. Her parents stated in an interview that they were really impressed by Josh. He had a good job as a mechanic where he often put long hours in six days a week. He had dreams of someday owning his own business, and his family lived in a really good neighborhood and seemed to have raised a very well-mannered young man. Her parents described Josh as mature, calm, charming, articulate, and polite, and who wouldn't want all of those qualities for someone that's dating their daughter? He seemed to really be the perfect fit for Brie. Her mother said he really seemed to have a deep love for her daughter. And as things progressed in their relationship, Bree slowly began seeing less and less of her friends, which I have to say, I remember that first real relationship, that first real love where you literally cannot get enough of each other. And when you're apart, it feels like the whole world is going to end. I've been there as I'm going to guess most of you have as well. So the idea of Bree seeing less of her friends wasn't really a red flag for her friends and family at the time. They just believed that she couldn't get enough of Josh and chose to spend time with him instead. So from the outside looking in, Bree seems to have it all. She's got this amazing, hardworking boyfriend, a foot in the door as a dental assistant with dreams of becoming a hygienist, and is attending college and doing well but everything wasn't as complete as they seemed. In the early morning hours on June 26, 2014, Bree's parents, Butch and Cindy, are awakened by a knock on the door that no parent wants to have. Standing there on their front porch was two police officers who was there to inform them that their daughter, Bree, was gone. Instantly, Cindy begins questioning the officers, asking if Bree died in a car accident to give her details and everything, but what officers replied with was something her parents would have never imagined. The officers tell Butch and Cindy that their daughter had been murdered. They explained that Bree had been shot once in the head and was killed instantly by her boyfriend, Josh. Her parents were completely shocked by this news and didn't know how to even begin to process the fact that the person that they thought loved their daughter could murder her in cold blood. Quickly, her parents learned that the person who they thought they knew, who they thought was a well-mannered, calm, charming, and polite young man, and who they thought loved their daughter, was not what he made himself out to be. Joshua Almeida had a past, and it was far from this image he portrayed himself to be on the outside. His criminal record was long, and it goes back many years before the pair even met. In February of 2011, Josh was arrested for attempting to run someone over with a truck and driving under the influence of alcohol. When they did a breathalyzer on him, he blew over twice the legal limit, and when he was arrested, they also found a handgun on him. 
In November of 2011, Josh was convicted of disorderly conduct for assault of his own mother with a broken pool stick. Not even a year after that, he got drunk at a party, assaulted a woman there, and then when he was kicked out of that party, he proceeded to steal one of the host's pickup truck. A lot of Josh's arrests all involved alcohol, including an arrest in 2009 for underage drinking. So clearly this guy had some issues with drinking and he was a felon before he ever met Bree. But there's even more. Butch and Cindy learned that in 2013, not long before Bree met him, he was on trial for four charges that stemmed from an assault of an ex-girlfriend of his. In the court records I saw, it stated that Josh had drank half a pint of alcohol and was so drunk he could barely walk. They were at her house for the night, and she decided to go ahead and go to bed. For whatever reason, Josh ended up getting so mad and so enraged that he picked this woman up, throwing her to the floor where she hit the doorframe. He then grabbed her by her hair, pulled a chunk of it out of her head, and then proceeded to drag her by her hair into the living room. He then held her down with his knees on her chest and was punching her in the head. Somehow, he managed to grab this mirror off the wall and hit her in the ribcage with it and then continued to punch her in the head some more. At some point during all of this, Josh shoots a gun off in the house. I didn't find the exact number of times that he shot, but I know that his girlfriend had multiple holes in her car and holes in the house as well. She somehow manages to escape and she goes to Josh's parents' house and they don't really help her. They give her a pair of pants to wear and instead of calling the police, they go to her house and they clean up the crime scene. No joke, you guys, his parents went and cleaned up all of the blood that this woman bled at the hands of their son with zero plans on calling police. Not only that, but they picked up the shell casings and hid his gun. After they were done cleaning, they took Josh home and at this point his ex-girlfriend goes home to her parents and it was her dad who actually called in and reported this incident. When the police ask Philip, Josh's dad, about cleaning up the crime scene at his girlfriend's house, he states him and his wife only cleaned up the blood. The officer specifically asks, quote, was there any weapons or anything? And his reply is, not that I remember. In the video that I watched on YouTube, after he replies to the officer, you hear a woman ask to speak with him. And I'm not sure if she's an attorney or who she is, but she's kind of giving advice to Philip about the situation. So that's what makes me think that she's possibly maybe their attorney. But she straight up lets him know that if he went to the house and cleaned up any shell casings or picked up a gun and then lied to the police about it, they will also be charged with a crime. And he just keeps saying, I don't remember. But the Almedas were never charged with a crime, nor did they have to testify against their son Josh in court because they were granted immunity and exercised their Fifth Amendment rights that protects them from self-incrimination. And somehow Josh ends up getting acquitted in November of 2013. And the Moore family had no idea that this had happened. In fact, Butch and Cindy didn't learn any of this information about Josh until he was at his bail hearing just days after Bree's murder. And according to USA Today, at the time of Bree's murder, Josh was actually still on probation for a controlled substance conviction in 2013. 
And of course, as part of probation, you're not supposed to drink or use drugs, nor was Josh ever supposed to have possession of guns ever again. Not only that, but on the night of Bree's murder, Josh had just returned from an anger management class. I can only imagine how the Moore family felt after learning about Josh and his past and about how his parents practically covered for their son the first time he beat the daylights out of a woman. And then the Moore family learns that Shannon, Josh's mom, waited two hours before she ever called 911 about Bree's death. According to Shannon, she was awoke in the middle of the night from Josh screaming downstairs in the basement. When she went down there to check on what was going on, that's when she saw Bree's lifeless body on the bed with a bullet wound to the head. She grabs the gun and then hides it in the dishwasher. When police finally arrive on scene, Josh immediately says that it was Bree who killed herself. He claimed to police that they were having a night of drinking and he got up, went to the bathroom to brush his teeth before they went to bed. He claims it was there that he had heard the gun go off and he rushed back into the room to find Bree dead on the bed. Which, according to Daily Mail, in a probable cause statement, Detective Monique Dole wrote, Initial crime scene analysis indicates that physical evidence at the scene was not consistent with a suicide. Of course, he was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. The community of Anchorage, Alaska, and specifically Bree's family and friends and co-workers were all so stunned that she became a victim of such a horrendous crime. Her family began rethinking of all the times they've spoken with Bree in the last few months and all of the times they saw her vibrant, beautiful smile in person. And none of them could even fathom how this could have ever happened to her. And while I can say I have never been in a domestic violence relationship, I can only imagine that Bree wanted to hide it from her family. But what about her closest friends? Had they seen signs of anything troubling or any kind of abuse? My best friend Andrea would instantly know if I had something going on behind closed doors. She's literally like my diary, and if I didn't tell her, she'd be able to tell that something was off with me just by talking to me. When Butch began talking to those who saw Bree on the daily, he learned that people at Bree's work had seen her come into work multiple times with black eyes. Not only that, but there was an incident when she came into work where she was looking rough. She also seemed super disoriented and became physically ill in the bathroom, which some people now question if maybe this was signs of a concussion or head trauma from being beat. As the reality set in, her sisters began to think back on things that they noticed too, but didn't realize at the time that it was a flag. In a news story that KTVA News did on Brie, her father tells about one of her older sisters noticing that she had deleted her Facebook. When asked about it in front of Josh, he replied for Brie saying, quote, She doesn't need a Facebook page. She doesn't need to be in communication with anyone else. She's with me. And this controlling obsessive behavior is exactly how it starts. These abusers start slowly by alienating you from your friends and your family. They manipulate you into deleting your social media, changing your phone number, screening phone calls so that they can have all of your time. And they make it out to be about them loving you. They make it seem like all they want is just to spend all their time with you and they want no distractions just so you guys can focus on each other because they just love you that much that they just want you to themselves. But what it really is, is them slowly squeezing tighter and tighter to gain more and more control over you. 
But the people who were around Josh and Bree the most because Josh lived with them was his very own parents. And it is believed that they witnessed things and never spoke up on behalf of Bree. I will link in the description of this episode a video that Butch made on YouTube. It's about an hour long, but in it is tons of recorded depositions of Josh's parents. In these depositions, Josh's parents get caught lying, which these depositions are under oath. Multiple times they are asked about Josh possessing guns when he shouldn't have been. They state he never had a gun until the time of Breathe's death, which we know is not true because he fired off that weapon in the first case against his ex-girlfriend when he beat her up and he shot off a gun several times which the prosecutors that were doing these questions jumped in on them and began questioning him about these other incidents where they know that Josh actually did in fact have a gun. This video is long, like I said, but if you watch it, you learn all about the first assault of the ex-girlfriend. You learn about how even though their son did all of these things, they never once warned Brie or even mentioned it to her. And you can watch as Shannon Almeida claims she does not believe her son was involved in that first incident with the ex-girlfriend. And she does not believe that her son was violent or dangerous leading up to Bree's death. Even though this is the same man who had charges against him for a disorderly conduct charge against his own mother. Or the man who repeatedly had physical altercations with women in the past. Or the man who repeatedly had guns in his possession, even though she lies about knowing about them and then is caught lying, when he isn't supposed to have them at all because he is a convicted felon. Bree's dad eventually files a wrongful death suit against Josh's parents. He claims they should have done more to protect his daughter and to prevent her death. Anchorage Daily News had a few statements from the complaint, and they are as follows. The parents sought to protect Joshua Almeida from criminal and civil liability, even when doing so placed others at risk. They withheld or concealed Joshua's violent tendencies from Brianna and her parents, and their misconduct created a high degree of risk of physical injury or death to Brianna. At the end of the complaint, Butch accuses Shannon of interfering with evidence, which we all know she's done this before. The complaint continues stating that she tried to alter the crime scene to protect Josh. Either Shannon or Josh moved Bree's body, and she allowed Josh to clean himself up and she helped hide evidence. And then she finally called police two hours after Bree was shot when Josh became emotionally unstable and began to be a threat to her. After getting so much evidence against the Almeidas for a civil suit, Butch ends up dropping the civil suit altogether so they could prosecute for felony charges of perjury. But for whatever reason, the state of Alaska will not prosecute the Almeidas. Bree's parents are not giving up their fight. They want to bring awareness to teens about the dangers of dating violence. So they came up with something called Bree's Law. Bree's Law is a teen dating violence awareness and prevention education that is part of the Alaska Safe Children's Act, which was signed into law by Governor Walker in July of 2015. Because of Bree's Law, dating violence education is being taught for grades 7th through 12th in all Alaska public schools. This education teaches teens how to develop healthy relationships, practice supportive communication skills, recognize the warning signs of an abusive relationship, and where to go for help. This education opportunity will not only be beneficial for Alaskan teens, but it will carry into their adult lives. 
In 2014, the year that Bree was killed, the state of Alaska ranked number one in men killing women at 3.15 women per 100,000, which is the rate of over twice the national average. And that number just keeps going up. In 2017, Alaska had a rate over three times the national average at 3.96 per 100,000. Alaska is also number one in intimate partner violence. The University of Alaska Justice Center estimates that one in every two Alaskan women will experience intimate partner violence, sexual violence, and or both during her lifetime. And according to Alaska.gov, in 2017, Alaska Youth Risk Behavior Survey reported that 1,700 students, which is 5.5% in Alaska's traditional high school programs, experienced sexual dating violence. And nearly 2,300 students, or 7.3%, experienced physical dating violence. This curriculum that they are bringing into schools in the name of Bree is helping save lives. And though her family has had so much pain and suffering from the loss of such a beautiful, bubbly, and vibrant daughter, her loss is not in vain. They are saving lives. Bree is saving lives, even in death. Bree's parents now travel around educating teens all about the dangers of teen dating violence. They tell Bree's story in schools all over Alaska as part of their teen dating violence awareness and prevention education. Josh ends up taking a plea deal and pleads guilty to second-degree murder in July of 2015. With this plea agreement, the judge was able to determine the sentencing of Josh. Both Butch and Cindy testify at Josh's sentencing saying how he was a danger if he was ever to be able to get out again and date. Bree's sisters also had the opportunity to speak and they pull out a box stating they brought what was left of their sister with them and they wanted to show the court. They proceed to reach into the box and pull out a small bag of ashes pleading to the judge to give Josh a harsh penalty. When I watched this, I specifically watched Josh's reaction to her sisters pulling out this bag of what was left of Bree. I was hoping for some sort of reaction or sign that he was remorseful. I wanted tears or him putting his head down or anything to show that he was truly sorry, even just a gasp or something. He showed absolutely nothing. He did nothing more than glance at the bag of ashes, and I think that speaks volume about his character. The judge agreed with the family and sentenced to Josh to 75 years in prison. Butch and Cindy are not done fighting for their daughter, Bree. As I stated, they're doing all that they can to raise awareness about this epidemic. They have created a website called breezelaw.org where you can get all information about dating violence, including direct links to resources. If you or someone you know is experiencing dating violence, whether you're a teen or an adult, please reach out to loveisrespect.org. You can also call at one 866 331-9474 or you can text the words love is to 22522. Help is free and confidential and available for anybody that you love or for yourself 24-7. As Bree's dad puts it, don't be afraid to save someone's life. Speak out if you know someone is going through this. If you are not already a part of our Facebook group, I highly advise you to find us by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. There I will have all information 
There I will have all of this information listed as well as pictures of Brie and links to her website. You can also follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you're notified every time a new episode goes live. Crimeaholics, that is all for this episode on teen dating violence. Until next time, be aware and take care.